Good morning, Old Oak Bible Church. Welcome to June 7th, 2020, our worship at home, time apart. Boy, it seems like forever since we've been together again, but our waiting is coming to an end. Uh, these have been crazy times, pandemic, unrest, but the Word of God stands forever, firmly established, and we draw near to the Lord today to find comfort, to find direction, to find help in our time of need. My name is Steve Barbie. I'm the lead pastor here at Old Oak Bible Church. I'm honored and blessed and humbled to serve in that way. And we would love to meet you if this is your introduction to Old Oak. So reach out to us in any way that you want. Maybe shoot me an email, pastorsteve at oldoak.org. Check out our website, oldoak.org, oldoakbiblechurch.org. We'll also get you there. Just a quick announcement. We said last week that next week, June 14th, is the Sunday when we will be back together in person. Of course, we want to do so in a way that is as safe as possible. To read some of the measures we're taking to do that, to try to ensure that, you'll find that on our website on the special COVID-19 update page. We also sent out a hard copy newsletter. So if you're listening to this and did not get one of those or have questions about that, Again, please reach out to me, please reach out to one of the elders, or even if you'd like to help in some way, we would love to hear from you in that way. But even if you're not ready to come back together in person, we will still try to stream, and we will stream our, our services, just in, in particular our sermons. So we want to make sure everybody's included still. And so this is a unique time. We're asking God's help, and we're trying our best to be faithful and knowing that None of us are sufficient for these things, but our sufficiency is in God, and we say that this morning. As we come to the last sermon in our just time in the Psalms, drawing near to God in the Psalms, we're going to be in Psalm 10. And next week, just to prepare your hearts, we're going to start a series in 1 Corinthians. So we'll walk through a few chapters of that over the next couple of months. Uh, really looking forward uh, to being in the opposite testament. We love going from old to new and back and forth. So hopefully you have a worship guide in place. We've been giving you those worship guides, hopefully, so that you can sing at home, you can pray at home just to prepare your hearts to receive the word. Haven't been doing as detailed of prayers at the beginning of our times in large part because praying with somebody that has recorded and that's on the video, at least for me, is a little strange, but you know we make the best of it. So we are going to pray, and then we will dive into God's word. So join me in praying. Fathers in heaven, certainly this day, just like in past weeks, our minds and hearts are elsewhere, and rightly so. We lament and grieve at much of what's going on around us and much of the unrest and much of the injustice. The injustice that occurs for other groups, the injustice that occurs for, for many. The violence, the hate. Uh, Lord, for, for the black community in, in particular and, and the family of George Floyd and and just for our cities in general that have a difficult time being ruled, God, we say you are on your throne. And we say this morning that we worship you like we said last week, at all times we praise your name because you are good. We have tasted, we have seen that you are good. And we want to do so again today, even as we cry out to you. Help us cry out for our neighbors. Oh Lord, help your church be good witnesses, be salt and light in the world. We pray that's the case for Trinity Church, uh, just in Olmstead Falls, in a new building, God, that they would be salt and light. And Lord, you would move among those people. We pray, God, even though there's much going on in our own country, we are not the only country in the world. We pray for the spread of your word, the advancement of your kingdom, and other places, even in a place like Brazil, South America, a place that's affected with COVID-19, just as we are, place, God, where we pray you extend mercy to bring more sinners into your kingdom and to bring much peace in that land, peace with you. So God, give us eyes to see, give us humble hearts to receive your word this morning, to be honest with ourselves, to remember that we are not wise in our own eyes, we are not righteous in ourselves, we need forgiveness, God. So have mercy on us, make us teachable, and bring fruit. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. This sermon this morning comes in the days and a couple weeks after the death of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who was killed by a white police officer. 
And it comes in the days after protests and riots ensued across the country. You've likely seen many clips. You're likely exhausted at all the reactions to this. You've likely seen a lot of responses and footage from across the country. This one scene, though, this week has stuck with me. It's, it was between, and it was an exchange between a 31-year-old black man and a 45-year-old black man. And it starts off with a 31-year-old saying, come here and tell me, I understand. 45-year-old response, I'm tired of this stuff. How old are you? I'm 45 years old. You're 45 and I'm 31. You're the older generation. Yeah, and we've been standing around as the older ones taking all this mess, always hoping for a kumbaya. Ain't nobody coming to protect us. I understand, but let me tell you something. A 31-year-old pulls a boy toward him. This boy right here is 16. What are we supposed to do? The 45-year-old responds. At this point, I'm ready to die for what's going on. At this point, the 31-year-old turns to look the boy in the eye and says, let me tell you something. What you see right now, all around us, is going to happen 10 years from now. And what you got to do right now is come up with a better way. Because what we've been doing, it ain't working. He's angry at 45. I'm angry at 31. You're angry at 16. Come up with a better way because we ain't doing it. I don't do justice to that exchange, but that exchange captures the sadness and captures the frustration of this time. What do you do when you see suffering and injustice and you desire to see change, but you don't know how to bring it, up, bring it about. This 31-year-old man knows that violence is not the answer, but what is the answer then? Well, this morning we hope to offer hope in the midst of darkness, but as the Bible models for us, we don't want to brush past the darkness. We want to acknowledge the dark situation, to lament it, to grieve it, and we want to cry out about it as well. There are many models of this in the Bible. Psalm 10 is one of those. If you haven't found it yet, take your copy of God's Word and find Psalm 10. And we'll read the whole thing. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror 
no more. This is God's word. And this portion of God's word, Psalm 10, is about what we do when others wrong us and nothing changes. Main point, you may see it in your online bulletin. When others wrong us, God does not ask us to hide it or to mask it or dismiss it in any way, but to expose it, cry out about it, and ultimately commit it to him. Now, before we dive into Psalm 10, I want to put in place several disclaimers this morning because we are approaching what can be a very fraught topic. One disclaimer I want to put in place is that we preach biblical texts, not headlines. If we were to preach headlines, I couldn't keep up with it. And we always want to let the biblical text set the agenda for our time, always. That being said, we must be mindful of the context in which we preach. That is of what's going on around us. We do not read scripture. We do not live out scripture in a vacuum. We live it out in a particular place, in a particular time. And when we ignore that, we become hearers of the word only and not doers. So, this moment that we are in now, in this time and place, is too obvious, too overwhelming, not to think through how we respond to it biblically, which is what we're trying to do this morning. And we need a little more extended treatment of it than a casual application. Now, at this moment in our time as a church, we're not preaching consecutively through a book. We're selecting psalms. And so, admittedly, I changed the psalm that I was going to preach for this week. I changed it to this one that speaks to how we respond to injustice, how we respond to being wrong. This is not by any means an exhaustive treatment of this subject, but it is a start. Disclaimers. So when we approach this subject and apply this psalm of how we respond to, to suffering and injustice, we can say that there are many in sufferings, sufferings and injustices this can apply to. Given what's going on, though, this morning I, I plan to apply Psalm 10 specifically to the suffering that took place in Minneapolis and primarily, not only, but primarily to the suffering and injustice that bemoans the black community across the United States. It's what I plan to primarily do. I know your eyes might be open after that. So let me put in place more disclaimers. Is this the only injustice and suffering of our day? No. Is this the only suffering and injustice that has happened the last two weeks? Not by a long shot. No. But I am aware that in a church with demographics like ours, I'll just say it, a church that is primarily white, I am aware that a church with a demographics like, like ours may have an easier time averting our eyes to that kind of suffering, may have an easier time of maybe seeing it but then brushing past it to focus on something else. I'm aware of that. So at the outset of our time, another disclaimer, can we make sure that we have a few postures in place? Let me just tell you, as the preacher, I want to have postures in place as I approach this psalm, as I approach trying to apply this psalm to our day and age. Every week I want to have these postures, but especially this week, I want to have the posture of humility. I want to acknowledge my limitations. I want to be aware as much as I can that I am ignorant of a lot of stuff. I want to be aware as much as I can of my own biases. And I pray that this morning that I apply the word in a way that is faithful to the word. But no, I want you to know that I know I have the capacity to be off. Please tell me. You can tell me. I, it is okay. I, listen, I'm going to try my best to be nuanced, to be fair, to be level-headed. But as always, I'm open to reasonable pushback. And I say, too, it's a comfort to me that if God can't use faithful but imperfect sermons, then he can't use any sermon. 
just me as the preacher, how I'm approaching this time, what posture, I want to have the posture of humility. Disclaimer, I want to have the posture of seeking the good of those who hear. Every week I want this. Seeking the good of those who hear, even when I challenge. I want to challenge, not with the aim of putting down, but of building up. When I challenge, I want to aim not at dividing, but at uniting. I want that posture in place. Now, as you listen to this time, I ask you to have some postures in place as well. Just at the outset of our time, would you ask God's help to have that same posture of humility? Now, I've heard it said many times, you've heard me share it probably, that one of the marks of mature Christians is that they are easily edified. That means, yes, we have discernment over what sound teaching is and isn't, but also that we are teachable, that we come to the word not first to criticize it, but to sit under it. And so for this morning, can you recognize that also you can be wrong, that you need a wisdom, a righteousness, a forgiveness outside of yourself? That's what it means to be a Christian. So this, this morning, I ask also that you approach this psalm and this, how we apply this psalm with a posture of empathy and patience. Empathy and patience. Please ask God's help to make you more ready to love your neighbor than to question your neighbor. Please ask for God's help for us to be quicker to listen than we are to speak. Please ask for God's help to do all that's necessary to be peacemakers and work toward unity and, and, not, and, and be okay with having some tension. That's all right. Now, if you've already bristled at some of the words I've said, please consider that you may especially need God's help to have these postures of humility, empathy, and patience. And I'll just say the last disclaimer, if you always feel comfortable leaving your time in the word, then friend, that could mean that you only hear what confirms your lifestyle and what confirms your preferences and what confirms your perspective. And we don't want that. With those disclaimers in place, we're going to walk through Psalm 10, applying to our situation in four stages. First, an honest cry. Second, an analyzing prayer. Third, a plea for help. And fourth, a declaration of hope. So first, an honest cry. Look again at Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Friends, this verse is in the Bible. This verse is in the Bible. Does that surprise you? The Spirit of God prompted the psalmist to write this prayer and ask these questions. Does that tell us we are allowed to ask questions like this? And notice these questions go deeper than asking whether God is real. The psalmist knows God is real just like he knows the sun is real, but the sun is eclipsed. He's saying, God I know you're out there, but I can't see you. Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you here when I need you the most? This is an honest cry, and it is a far cry, it seems, from another familiar statement in the Psalms that God is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. Doesn't that seem worlds away from this cry? Listen, I know there have been moments in your life when you have asked, where are you, God? Where were you, God, when I needed you? Right now, just collectively, our collective situation, there is a pandemic that has taken over 100,000 lives in the United States. Right now, just thinking collectively, as a country, there are millions of people out of work. And right now, I know, I know specific members of Old Oak have had good reasons to ask these kinds of questions of Psalm 10, verse 1. I know there are members of Old Oak who have faced divorce, 
who have faced cancer, repeated bad diagnoses, broken up families, addiction, abuse, death. Let me be one this morning who says, I can see why you would ask the same kinds of questions as Psalm 10, verse 1. Let me be one this morning who does not dismiss your suffering, but acknowledges it. And then let me ask you, friends, can you who have cried out these same kinds of questions of Psalm 10, verse 1, can you who have asked these questions see why our black neighbors across the United States, including our black brothers and sisters in Christ, ask these same questions of God? Can you see why they would ask these same questions of God in light of recent events, in light of events of the past decades and centuries? Can you see why they would ask that? Are you sympathetic toward the cry of a grown man who is unarmed, who is handcuffed, who is pinned to the ground for nine minutes, crushed, life crushed out of him, and pleads for his mother? Are you sympathetic to the tears of one of the church members who's black, who says she is scared for her son and grandson in growing up in this environment? I'm not saying you can't be concerned with anything else. I am asking, can you see their pain and hear their cries? Now, before we move on to verses 2 to 11, we need to clarify that while this is an honest prayer, this is not an indicting prayer. In other words, we ask these honest questions from a standpoint of wanting God, not a standpoint of blaming God. That we are allowed to be honest about being overwhelmed, but when we are doing that, we are still reaching out toward God. You see, friends, doubting and questioning is not wrong, but there is a way to do that that is wrong. We should ask these kinds of questions with a heart that desires to know God, with a heart not that satisfied with pat answers, but that thinks deeply and that holds on to what we know to be true. Psalm 10 models that kind of heart for us. So let's keep going. After our honest cry comes an analyzing prayer. This is verses 2 to 11, the longest chunk of this psalm. Just You could take a glance at it. We're not going to read it again. But verses 2 to 11 are among the longest statements analyzing the thought processes, emotions, descriptions, and motivations of those who wrong and harm others in all of the Bible. It is a long description of this. And just notice different elements of this description here. The, psalm, the psalmist highlights the oppressor's pride. That comes out pretty clearly, doesn't it, in verses 2 to 11? I mean, the ones who oppress others are ones who practically worship their own desires. Their desires consume them to the point that they seek them by any means necessary. They are committed to asserting themselves, which leads them, you see, to renouncing God. So they say with bravado in verse 4, there is no God, but in their hearts, verse 11, they know better. They say God has forgotten. Like many of the most vocalist atheists, their mindset really is, there is no God and I hate him. They commit to asserting themselves, which leads them to put down anyone who gets in their way by whatever cunning, by whatever craftiness necessary. So we see that pride and cruelty go hand in hand. Pride and crushing others go hand in hand. 
Charles Spurgeon observes this in his Treasury of David and commentary on the Psalms. He says the fact that the, pro- the man is proud and arrogant may go a long way to prove that he is vindictive and cruel. In the book of Esther, for example, Haman's pride was the father of a cruel design to murder all the Jewish people. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol in pride. He commands all men to bow before it. And then cruelty stands ready to heat the furnace seven times hotter for those who will not yield to his imperious will. Every proud thought is twin brother to a cruel thought. He who exalts himself will despise others. And one step further will make him a tyrant. So just this long description of the oppressors who wrong the helpless. And another element we should notice in this description is that the oppressor's success validates their actions and entrenches them deeper into their prideful way of life. And so then the final terrible results that the psalmist bemoans is that these people ascend the ranks of the world, mocking God and crushing the weak along the way. This is what the psalmist takes time to describe in detail. And by doing that, by writing about those who oppress with this level of detail, the psalmist here in Psalm 10 models a couple of healthy approaches for how we draw near to God when others have wronged us. One of the ways that the psalmist models that is that we can and should acknowledge every level of suffering and injustice, even in detail. We can and should talk this out to God. We can and should even notice the Godward dimension of their wrong, that they don't just harm people, they sin against God. But there's another thing that the psalmist models for us of how we draw near to God when processing how others have wronged people. And this, the second approach the psalmist models is a little less obvious, but I think is very, very important. The psalmist in Psalm 10, notice, he appears to write about injustice and suffering that doesn't affect him personally. Do you see that? It's, it's a very subtle thing. This is, he writes of a suffering and injustice that is outside of him. A suffering and injustice that he witnesses happen to other people. So when he describes the victims of this oppression, he does not say, God, we are being crushed. No, he says, the poor, the helpless, the innocent are being crushed. Does not this follow in Scripture's instruction toward us of God calling out his people to take their eyes off of themselves and look to others around them. God calls his people especially to have an eye toward those around us who are weak, who are vulnerable, who are downtrodden, who are victimized, who are defenseless. We just think example after example, sweeping the narrative of Scripture from the foreigner who gleans in the fields, from the sojourner who dwells among God's people, to the troubled souls to whom Jesus ministered, to the poor, the widow, and the orphan that James says doing good to them is true religion. We have a duty to see the suffering and injustice of that's happening around us, that is outside of us. The whole Bible screams at us to have eyes for that. And there's a lot of it, isn't there? There is much suffering and injustice around us. There is even a lot that we ourselves face as we have acknowledged. But brothers and sisters, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has a history and has a reputation of having selective vision for the suffering and injustice that is around us. Just ask, 
Are you able to see the suffering of those around you, even those who are different than you? Which apply to our situation here that we've been discussing. Do you lament the Godward dimension of the sin of racism and oppression of people of color? That it is a violation of, it is a blasphemy of the truth that God has made every person in his image. That the dignity of a person does not depend on the pigment of their skin. Akin to verses 5 and 6. You notice those again there. Can you see the stubborn, unchanging nature of this problem that has lasted for generations? How this problem has went from chattel slavery to the Reconstruction era when freed slaves had no land, no education, and were surrounded by people who were hostile toward them. To the great migration, when black people fled north in overwhelming numbers, only to be driven out of neighborhoods they settled in and have their rent driven up in already poor neighborhoods they ended up in. To the Jim Crow South, where segregation was the official policy and authorities ignored violence against black people, including vigilante violence like lynching. To the post-civil rights era, when schools and neighborhoods and black communities are funded and policed and hospitalized and incarcerated in plainly inequitable ways. I'm not trying to level guilt. I'm not saying there are no other problems. Please don't hear me saying that. All I'm asking, can you see this? Right now, in our moment, this problem should be like the big E on the eye doctor's exam. Can you see why, akin to verses 7 through 9, that our black neighbors would feel targeted? Why they feel that, the color, uh, that they, have, they have unique burdens that come just because of the color of their skin? Can you see why, akin to verse 10, they feel crushed? Why, akin to verse 11, God would care about this? Friends, a, a question that haunts me, a question that might, this should probably haunt us, is that if our God has a heart for the helpless and the oppressed, that's just so clearly established throughout the sweeping narrative of Scripture, if God has that heart, why is the overwhelming perception of Christians in the United States that we have the exact opposite heart? Why is that the perception? Is some of that perception overblown? Probably. But can we really say that that perception is not completely unjustified? Why can we not see the suffering outside of us like the psalmist of Psalm 10 does? And why do we have a hard time seeing this kind of suffering in particular? Let me offer, this is, a, this is a longer sidebar, but I think worth talking about, four broad categories of reasons why we have a blurred or selective vision when it comes to lamenting and noticing the suffering that does not affect us personally. There's some overlap here, but mainly build on each other. First reason why we have a hard time seeing suffering outside of ourselves. First reason, we get caught up in terms and slogans that we do not define carefully, which results in us talking past each other instead of talking to each other. You want a way to summarize that? We get, up, we get caught up in terms and slogans that go undefined. Ephesians 5 verse 6 warns us not to be deceived by empty words. So friends, we tolerate political discourse from leaders and news outlets that communicate in tweets that are only 140 characters and sound bites designed solely to grab our attention and to make us worked up. Do not go for cotton candy. Go for substance. Second, why do we have such a hard time seeing and lamenting suffering and injustice that is outside of us? Second broad reason, our anger 
produces an all-or-nothing approach to everything. Our anger produces an all-or-nothing approach to everything. Now, while we are rightly angry at perceived injustice, and we should be, there is such a thing as righteous anger, often is the case we have hearts that want to prove we're right and put others down more than hearts that are humble and want to win others over. I read Proverbs 14 this past week, and one of the Proverbs of that chapter uh, says that a simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thoughts to his steps. Our anger produces an all-or-nothing approach to everything. So instead of an all-or-nothing approach, instead of just believing in the most simple, obvious solution, we should acknowledge that a lot of our issues and what's going on are very layered, are very complicated, and are not at all simple. We should stop operating solely in either ors and start operating in more both ands. Let me give you some examples. We can say both. There are many good and effective police officers. It's really hard to be a cop, and it's an honorable job. We can say that, and we need to reform how we police. We can say both. We are thankful for our country, pray for our leaders, celebrate the good, and we need to hold our leaders accountable, lament much of our past and even much of our present. We can say both. The violence against George Floyd is wrong and looting and the violence of riots are also inappropriate and wrong. We can say both. People are responsible for their own actions. Everybody faces difficulty. And some groups face more difficulty than others. We can call for both personal repentance and corporate repentance from institutions for not carrying out their responsibilities. The biblical prophets and Jesus himself models this, who spoke against figures and authority. And if we just stick at the personal level, we can. Just because more people are polite does not mean that other people aren't, does not mean that appearances tell the whole story. But more than that, just beyond I am not personally against or or oppressed people does not mean that there are no other problems. We should say both. We can say and should say both. The church's mission is to preach the gospel, make disciples of Jesus, and The gospel shapes all of life. The gospel produces people who love their neighbor and who follow and represent Jesus in all of life. Friends, that's literally how every letter in the New Testament is structured, beginning with the theology and leading to see how the theology informs life. And if we separate the two, we will not have a life of thoughtful repentance and faith toward God. If we separate the two, can we forget the gross examples from our own history? And one theologian pointed this out, I heard recently. In our own history, there were people who sang with gusto, oh, how I love Jesus, with full hearts. And then Sunday afternoon, went and whipped and raped their slaves. That person does not understand or believe and have been transformed by the gospel. The gospel, Jesus, shapes all of life. When you separate any of these into an either-or, you get misunderstanding, you get cancel culture, you get quarrels, you get imbalance, you get echo chambers. Instead, we offer a more excellent way something akin to Romans 14. That we think deeply through an issue ourselves, that we don't allow anger to consume us, that we have hearts that love others before and even as we seek to convince others, that we realize that thoughtful people can land in different places over certain matters of conscience. Long sidebar, I warned you. 
Why do we have such a hard time? What prevents, what, what gives us selective vision of seeing the suffering outside of us like the psalmist in Psalm 10 does? Well, we said first we operate only in, you know, undefined slogans and terms. And then second, our anger produces just this all or nothing approach that we only operate in either ors instead of both ands. Third reason, we have disordered allegiances. We have disordered allegiances. Remember the scene of the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, For it, is reported, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Y'all, where is our deepest allegiance and loyalty? I'm telling you, everybody, all of us, we are encroaching upon an unquestioning loyalty, an embarrassing level of gullibility to movements and leaders besides Christ. We forget that Jesus said his kingdom was not a, is not of this world. And the truth is we should never really feel at home in a political party. And when that is our deepest allegiance, oh, we're just going to be disappointed. Let me tell you something. Jesus is a better God than politics. Jesus is the head of the church. No one else. Your politics should not shape your Jesus. Jesus should shape your politics. When we have deeper allegiances than Christ, we will have biases unbiblical. We will have blind spots to what is uncomfortable for us to hear. Reason number four, last one, why we have such a hard time seeing the suffering outside of us like the psalmist does in Psalm 10. We have inconsistent, self-serving hearts. We have inconsistent, self-serving hearts. Every age, and ours especially, is the age of the Pharisee. Listen to Jesus' words of the Pharisees. He'd, he says in Matthew 23, He says, For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, if you don't think this, this affects you, you're not thinking hard enough. Let me be brave and give a few examples of inconsistent, self-serving hearts. We say we want unity, but we demonize those we don't, uh, who we don't like and who disagree. Unlike 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. We hope for the worst about people we disagree with, not for the best. Another example, inconsistent self-serving hearts. We who want tolerance cannot tolerate anyone who even remotely disagrees with us. Inconsistent, self-serving hearts. This one's touchy. I'm going to go for it with just humility. Protesting is a right, and at this point, probably necessary, very important. But why can we do this important task without social distancing, but we are not allowed to do another important task like seeing loved ones who are dying? Is that not inconsistent? Inconsistent, self-serving hearts. But go for it. We say we're against violent riots and we're allies to peaceful riots. But very recently have been appalled by peaceful protests. We signal our own morality and wisdom and perspective, but turn a blind eye to when the leaders we support fall short and violate the standards of ethics, sound judgment, level-headedness, and intelligence we have held in the past and hold for our opponents. Inconsistent, self-serving hearts 
we talk about certain violations of the image of God, speak out against the structures that uphold those violations, but we ignore other violations of the image of God. We can and should speak up and speak for uh, the life of the unborn from biblical marriage. But why is it that hardly anyone bats an eye among Christians when we talk about abortion or biblical marriage, but people get worked up and upset about issues that disproportionately affect our black and brown neighbors? Why is that inconsistency there? We have become so committed to being against something that we have forgotten what we are for. We deflect any confrontation that hits a little too close to home by shifting the focus away from ourselves to how others respond. Inconsistent, self-serving hearts, we march on unfazed like the one described in Psalm 10 because we see success as a rubber stamp of approval. And the Bible is so clear that it is not. We value comfort more than compassion. Seeing people first as an inconvenience before seeing them as people who need help. We have not heeded the Bible's warning not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We do not recognize that, you know, maybe we do have blind spots. Maybe we can be wrong about certain matters. Maybe there are injustices from which we avert our eyes and dismiss too quickly. We join the Pharisee looking at the tax collector in Luke 18 and say, thank God we're not like those people. And we forget to cry out to God for mercy. Why do we avoid why can we not see the suffering outside of us like the psalmist does? All these reasons we've discussed and more blur our vision, put blinders on us. And so instead, we choose to pray, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We pray, have mercy, God. Have mercy to make us like the psalmist who sees the suffering around him. To give us hearts for the helpless because we know that we were helpless, but you saw us. We know that we strayed, but you sought us. We know that we were guilty, but you died for us. That is a heart that analyzes and laments and has mercy on the suffering outside of him. Where do we go from here? Having cried out honestly, analyzed the wrong around us, which is often very hard for us to see, we plea for help. Plea for help. Verses 12 to 15. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Notice, the psalmist prays that God would bring the opposite of what's been going on. So the wicked say, you've forgotten. God, show that you haven't. The wicked say that they can't be moved. God, rise up and move them. The wicked crush the afflicted. God, rise up, help the afflicted. The wicked say that you don't care, that you don't hold people accountable. God, rise up, prove them wrong. The hurting need you. Help them like you have helped them in the past. And when the psalmist prays, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, he is praying that God would remove their power. A broken arm, it can't do anything. 
This is a cry for God to destroy and end evil and let no more of it be found. Overall, this is a cry that is a direct, articulate prayer that pursues God's will, that pursues God's glory, and pursues the good of people. So like the honest cry at the beginning of the psalm, this plea for help here comes from one who does not respond to evil with more evil but responds with seeking faith, with dependence on the Lord, the one who can and the one who will right every wrong with perfect justice, who does what we cannot. So in all the response and fallout of the last couple of weeks, we apply this to our own situation. Have you prayed? Or have you just been caught up in posturing? You know, many people worry about how others will perceive their response more than worrying about actually responding in prayer. And what might be the content of our direct, articulate prayers for God to help the hurting and end injustice? Well, we might pray, God, bring reform and change that might be hard but necessary. God, expose works of darkness that are kept hidden. God, help our leaders hear cries for justice and maintain peace and aim toward unity at the same time. God, open our eyes to see the suffering around us and give us hearts for it. God, bring healing to a divided land that comes ultimately through the saving and transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of this plea for God to help, we should consider something else here. We should consider that one of the ways God brings help is through his people. We pray for God to bring justice, and the Bible also says God commands us to walk in justice. We know it well. You've probably heard it. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. One of the ways, one of the ways God might answer the cries of those suffering around us, be they our black neighbors or our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world, one of the ways God might answer their cries for help is for God's church to start listening. For God's people to start supporting, speaking, praying, and acting. Listen, God does not need us, but we may be in a position to help. We cannot do everything. We cannot bring a utopia. We cannot end sin and injustice completely. Only Jesus will do that when he returns to make all things new. Only Jesus can transform hearts. We seek the city that has foundations, as the book of Hebrews says. We wait for a better home. But in the meantime, as the book of Jeremiah says, we seek the prosperity of the city in which we are in. And we say that our efforts now in line with 1 Corinthians 15 are not in vain in the Lord. So we'll land in different places as far as how we should respond to the injustices around us. And that's okay. We'll land in different places as far as what candidates to vote for, what policies to support, what neighborhoods to live in. But concerning this suffering and injustice in particular that is faced and is facing our black neighbors, here is a starting point. And as individuals... And as a church, we say to our black neighbors and the black community as a whole, we see you. You have dignity and worth bearing the image of God. And we hear your cries and we want to listen. And for many of us, including myself, we are sorry it has taken us so long. How should we end? The final movement of the psalm is a declaration of hope. Let's read verses 16 to 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. 
O Lord, you hear the, the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. When others have wronged us and we witness the wrong around us, we can follow the steps of Psalm 10. Cry out honestly. Talk out the situation with God, analyzing it, not ignoring it. Plea for help. And we can declare our hope. Like many other psalms, this one here closes by affirming what is still true. What is still true? It is still true that God reigns over the universe on his throne. It is still true that nothing will take him off his throne. That he will reign over the universe long after every empire and every country, friends, even our own, is long gone. God will reign. Though circumstances may not change, though the wrong prevails, it is still true that God strengthens his hurting people. Though we wait for wrongs to be made right, it is still true that one day our waiting will end. Justice will roll down like waters and terror will be no more. How do we know? How do we know that these are just nice things to say? How do we know that God really does love the helpless? That God really is not standing far off. That God really does love the one acquainted with grief. That God really does love the ones oppressed by injustice and partiality. How do we know? Because he became one of them himself. Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, is the ultimate innocent one who suffered unjustly. Who became helpless who was acquainted with grief and who suffered not for his own sins but for the sins of his people. And so, friends, see the one here who does not stand far away but who is God with us, God come down to us, God who lived among us, who died for us, who rose again, and who will return to take us home. And commit yourself to him, trusting in his life, not your own. Trusting in his death to pay for your sin, not your supposed good works. Walk in Jesus' ways in a world of darkness to look upon others as he looked upon you and hold on to him in a world of much wrong because one day he will make it right. Less than 24 hours before his death, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Let's pray. Lord God, you seem far off. And we feel it. You don't ask us to throw away those feelings. We acknowledge them. But we stand on what is true. We lament all the wrong and difficulty around us and ask for your mercy. There is a pandemic. There is joblessness. There is injustice. There is difficulty. We do not ignore the wrong. We acknowledge it. We cry out to you for it. We grieve. We want to notice suffering and injustice that does not just personally affect us, but that is around us. Give us those hearts, knowing that you looked on us when we were helpless, that you became helpless yourself. God the Son, oh Lord, we need your help. Keep us humble. Keep us loving. Keep us hopeful in you.
In Jesus' name, amen.